You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We are continuing our series called Simply Jesus. We're looking at the Gospel of Mark where we find simply Jesus. He is presented by Mark in one of the most simple forms possible of the four Gospels. He's probably the first written. And uh, his Gospels also the simplest in some ways uh, from all of them. Um, But the question is, who is simply? Simply, who is Jesus? Who is he? How do we know? It's interesting how in our society most people do love Jesus or like Jesus or think he's probably somebody who was just all right with me um, or cool or whatever you want to say. Boy, did I, uh, again, age myself with that. If you didn't understand the Doobie Brothers, right? We could sing it next week. Jesus is just all right with me. Yeah, But... um, What's interesting is a lot of times Jesus becomes a projection of our wish dreams in our society. And um, uh, it was uh, Feuerbach way back, even before Sigmund Freud and Karl Marx talked about religion in the ways that they did. Feuerbach was the first one to write this out and state it, that basically our view of God is whatever we project on him that we need. And so it started out way back when, you know, I am finite, so God is infinite. I die, and God cannot die. And so we project on God all the things that we'd like. I am weak. God is almighty, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. Is that what we find when we get to the Gospel of Mark? Is Jesus just the projection of what the people wished and dreamed and what they expected? Actually, it's totally on the contrary. He breaks everybody's expectations. He shocks. He astounds even his own family members in our text today. What we find is Jesus defying expectations. And so we're going to be in Mark chapter 3 this morning. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never have his has Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? 
And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is a remarkable passage in the book. Mark's just extraordinary in bringing it up. We discover there are two theories that are raised here of who Jesus is. Both theories are wrong. Then we hear from Jesus' own lips who he says he is. And finally, we get a look at how that impacts us. And those are our three points for our message today. Theories about who Jesus is, Jesus' own self-description, and then the impact that that has. Okay? So theories about Jesus. Did you notice verse 21 and 22 right next to each other? It says, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. That's theory one. He's a lunatic. Any family members you know that you uh, can think of? Like, <laughs> Your family knows you best, and here his family is saying he's crazy. He's nuts. Okay? And then the second theory comes. This is from the religious leaders. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. They're basically saying he's, part of, he's a liar. He's the father of lies, just like the devil. He's, that's theory two. Now, what are these theories, these two theories, trying to explain? You know what theories theories try to, they look at the data, and they try to make sense of the data. That's good theories for you, right? And so they're trying to figure out through what Jesus is saying, how he is acting, what he is doing, who is this guy? By the way, by chapter 3 already, there's a lot of data that says one of these two has to be right. He's either insane or he is um, he's kind of in league with the devil because he seems to have miraculous powers and at the same time, he's saying things no other human being has ever said about himself, quote, and gotten away with it. Okay? By this point in time already, this is just chapter 3, and yet he is taken on the title, Son of Man, his favorite title in the books of the Gospels, by the way, for himself. And this is basically aligning himself with this vision in Daniel chapter 7, where one who's divine and human, like the Son of Man, reigns in power and sits at the right hand of God. Quite the title to call yourself. He's also claimed to be the Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath, that he is the one who set up the Sabbath, which only God can do. And he said also that he is the Son of Man who has authority to directly forgive sins, no ifs, ands, or buts, no conditions on it. I forgive directly, and they are forgiven. And everybody's saying, who can, but God alone can do these types of things. Now, if you meet a person, not just jokingly, or on one occasion, but who seriously keeps saying things like, well, you know, I, I've existed before time was. And um, I helped create this world. And by the way, I'm the one who ultimately determines your destiny. And at the end of the world, when all time is fulfilled, I will come and everyone in this world 
will stand or fall based on their relationship to me. Um, do you understand? What kind of a person is that? What would you say? Either the person is totally nuts or they are lying through their teeth and they, um, they know they're lying and they are quite wicked with their lies. So here we get the fact that his family thinks he's a lunatic and the religious leaders call him a liar. Those are the two theories. Those are the two that you meet in the Gospels. Those are the two that the people looking at the data in the first century came up with. And the third theory is the one that the Gospels promote themselves. And that is, he is Lord. He is who he says he is. So you got it. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. Those are the only options that we find in the first century. Now... Um, a lot of people kind of struggle with those today. We modern people don't like those options, you know. We want to we wanna create a fourth option, saying, you know, Jesus, well, he's a nice guy. He is a teacher of love and peace. Let's all just get along, hold hands across America and across the world. Can't we all just get along? Didn't he talk about forgiveness? Didn't he talk... We come up with a fourth alternative that no one else ever in his lifetime ever came up with and said to Jesus, wow, I really like what you're saying. You're kind of a nice sage or teacher. Um, the record simply, nobody find, you can't find anyone in any of the Gospels to say, wow, that's really interesting, Jesus. They either were shocked at what he said, they denied what he said, they dismissed him as a lunatic, or they fell at his feet in worship. It's either the fact that they thought he was either out of his mind, or he was in league with the devil, or he was who he said he was. Now, over the years, there have been a few people who have talked a little like Jesus. In fact, I met some of them. When I was in my undergraduate work in Ann Arbor, Michigan, I would go once a week for a year or two to Ypsilanti State Mental Health uh, Mental Hospital. And there was a book written about that place called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. Three different people said they were the Messiah there. But notice where they were, right? And they couldn't really back up the claims too well. And um, we would go there and we'd sit down and try to play chess or checkers with the people, uh, with these guys on this floor. And we would walk away and know pretty well, uh, yeah, these people claim a lot of stuff, but they're pretty well where they're supposed to be. What you find, though, in world history is that there is no other world religious leader. And like I you know, I, I teach world religions at FGCU. There is no other world religious leader, no other one that founded a religion that ever claimed anything like Jesus did. None. And none of them backed it up. A few people, over time, have claimed to be God or divine, but um, as soon as they die, so does their followings die. 
No other world religion has taken off as a result of the claims of an individual like Jesus, but Christianity. And these claims are actually way over the top. I don't know if you realize this, because in um, where Jesus lived in Palestine, in Israel, they had a very unique understanding of God based on the entire history of the Old Testament and their own people. They believed, unlike Eastern people, who may look at the divine being this kind of impersonal force that is between and in all things and through all things, and therefore gods, the gods may show up in different various avatars and forms throughout time, here and there, occasionally throughout history in some way, the children of Israel did not believe that God was an impersonal divine force, that divinity ran through creation, but that God created totally separate from his creation. He was wholly other, wholly distinct, wholly different, and wholly above and beyond in a whole category by himself. And unlike the Western people like Rome and Greece, where uh, the gods were less than perfect, if you've ever read their mythology, they were impish, but, um, but divinely powerful human beings, still subject to the fates themselves, more like a soap opera than anything else in these myths. And the only thing that they could claim is being immortal, and once in a while they might show up in human history just for the fun of it and for recreational purposes. The God of the Bible... And the history of Israel said God is so other and holy and distinct that by the time of the first century, the Jews of Jesus' day would not even utter the syllables of the proper name of God for fear of mispronouncing them. And through their history, they had learned, as I said, I think on Easter as well, that, hey, we did that idolatry thing back then. Never Ever again, will we ever give any glory or honor to anything, any image, any, any angel, let alone a human being? And yet, what we have here is someone who claims to be divine, who is considered either a blasphemer in line with the devil or insane, or his claims are actually what they are. They are the last people on earth to ever worship or give honor or glory to someone like Jesus. And there were messianic pretenders before Jesus and after Jesus. There were Messiah-type figures. Not one of them. You cannot find any of them in history ever claimed to be deity. Just, quote, the Messiah. So how in the world did it happen that the world's now largest religion comes from someone who claims what Jesus claimed. What kind of a life would Jesus have had to live so that he did not end up at Ypsilanti State Mental Hospital? <laughs> or be considered so repugnant and evil that he's on the list of the infamous leaders of history that we have? What kind of a life did he live? that was so, in one sense, egocentric about his claims, and yet so other-centered 
in his actions and works. Where he was so focused on, you know, healing the leper, welcoming the outcast, forgiving sins, serving, feeding, and finally giving his whole life over. That he would care so much about the poor and the marginalized and the suffering. That whiplash back and forth between these utterly amazing claims and this utterly other-centered life finally did lead his disciples to call him Lord. Now I know, we uh, modern people still don't like those choices, lunatic, liar, or Lord. And in fact, um, we try to come up with another one. <laughs> you know, that, well, okay, so yeah, you know, those Gospels, that's what they say. But you just can't believe what the Gospels say because they were written so long after the life of Jesus. He, was, he must have been some wise, wonderful, sage kind of esoteric teacher of peace and justice and love. And then his disciples later on and those who followed him decided to embellish the story and then finally write it down so we get what we have. It's kind of the Da Vinci Code claim, by the way. Have you ever read that book? Watched the movie? Never watched the movie, read the book. It's pretty bad. Um, but Dan Brown's claim, it's, not nothing any, it's nothing new. It's been around for quite a long time. Now, um, you just can't trust the New Testament is the way that people now these days try to say, and Jesus is just this teacher behind it, that the Gospels are myths and legends, and behind it is just a human being. But I'll tell you, there are three at least good reasons why that's just not possible, okay? First of all, the New Testament Gospels are just too early to be legends. I don't know if you realize this, but the letters of Paul, probably written first, they're only 15 to 20 years after the life of Jesus. And the Gospels themselves, Mark being the first, but all four of them were written in, within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of the people who are in the Gospels. Now, if you're going to try to create a legend, you really can't do it within a decade or so of the actual events. You've got to wait some time, because otherwise, you'd have everybody saying, wait a minute, I was there. That did not happen. That did not happen. Secondly, their content is actually counterproductive. So in this text itself, do you realize in the four Gospels that all of Jesus' followers look like jerks? That they are absolutely imbeciles at times? And in this text itself, his own family comes because they think he's nuts, right? They want to take him away, to seize him. That word for seize is actually to, to arrest him and, you know, put him in a straitjacket, take it home, and lock the door. That's what they're talking about. And one of those early, one of those members of his own home, the early church confesses, is James, his half-brother. Do you realize how he looks, how horrible James and even his mother looks from this text? It's counterproductive. And the disciples along the way are absolutely 
jerks and egotistical and self-centered individuals just like the rest of us. If you're going to make up a legend, at least make yourself look good while you're writing it. And thirdly, the genre is way too detailed to be legend. It's fascinating, not just in this text, but other texts. The details of what's going on uh, is like, so later on in Mark, we're going to see that he feeds the 5,000, and it says, and he had them sit down in groups on the green grass. Such a detail of only as if somebody was right there and knew that the grass was green, right? Now you go like, what kind of There's a lot of brown grass, especially in the Middle East, okay? Or another place where Jesus calms the storm, it says that he, he was in the back of the boat and he was asleep on a cushion. Why would you put that in there? These are details. Um, here's what C.S. Lewis who actually was a, a scholar both at Oxford and Cambridge, who uh, read, he was a scholar of literature itself. He was a writer himself that wrote many books, who had studied all this stuff. This is what he says. I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else someone unknown, some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative 2,000 years ahead of, it, of when it happened. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. There are, there's no other literature from the first century that looks like this that isn't history, that isn't eyewitness account. You don't find legends at that time that were written as if they were eyewitness accounts. In fact, that didn't happen until the modern era. So for those three reasons, the Gospels are what they say they are. Now, you might say, wait a minute, John, don't you know there are other Gospels than the four that are in the New Testament? Yes, there are. Okay, We've known these so-called Gnostic Gospels for quite a while. You've probably heard of them, and the Da Vinci Code brings up the whole idea of them again. We've known them since 1945, when these texts were discovered in the Coptic language, the papyrus from Nag Hammadi, Egypt. But what we find in those texts, um, almost unanimously, all of them agree that they are written well after the Gospels that we have. In fact, um, the one Gospel of Thomas, which is probably the most famous of them, was probably the earliest, and it was written probably about 100 years after the Gospel of Mark and Matthew and Luke, and at least 75 years after John. And um, when you read the Gospel of Thomas, if you ever do, it's just a bunch of sayings. Most of them esoteric um, detached from history sayings that Jesus supposedly uttered. And it teaches something that's totally antithetical that, uh, to the entire Old Testament, that this world is an illusion, and the real world is spiritual, and you just have to avoid the material world, which is totally against the idea of God creating the world good. No Jewish rabbi in the first century would ever teach something like that unless he was going to contradict 
all the scriptures that were known to God's people. So the Gospel of Mark, it's not a legend, but the Gospel of Thomas comes across as legendary. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. So, those are the options. What do we hear from Jesus now? That's our second point, finally. And um, these two are coming up that are much shorter than the first. <laughs> Please, right? So Jesus himself describes who he is in this text in a very unique way. It's Matthew th Mark 3, 23 to 27. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So right here we see right away he calls this, he speaks to them in parables, that is in a metaphor. And he shares two different kind of stories or metaphors or comparisons. The first is someone like an evil prince who is over a kingdom. And that evil prince goes to war. He's not going to fight himself. He's not going to send part of his troops against his own troops. That would make no sense. If Jesus is casting out demons, it would be totally self-defeating if he was the prince of those demons. And then Jesus likens um, this world to a strong man who has held many people captive, held hostage, and the hostages happen to be us. And the only way to rescue those hostages, to plunder those goods, to get that, those hostages out of the house, is to come in as one who is stronger. The strong man can rob him of his own captives. This is the last straw, really, to say that Jesus was just a teacher. Because what kind of a teacher talks this way, that I'm going to come into this world and deliver this world? And think of the things that help humans in bondage at that time and place and in our day and age. Disease, death, war, injustices all around. What kind of a teacher releases or liberates from all of those? Jesus is saying, I'm going to do for you. I'm going to liberate you. I'm going to plunder the devil's stronghold. I am the divine warrior who's going to come and take over. Jesus is tapping, in a sense, to one of the deepest strata throughout all of Scripture here. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The time that the devil himself did kind of start the hostage and hold the world hostage. When paradise was lost, when the serpent spoke the first lie and Adam and Eve believed it. And then God speaks to that situation. He speaks directly to the serpent itself and says, The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So God is saying, 
to this serpent right here. You've triumphed for a short time. You're in charge right now. But one who is going to be born from this woman is going to come and crush you. Now, as he does, you will strike him and mortally wound him. And he will die in the effort. But that warrior will win. And this motif is picked up throughout the scriptures of someone who will come and finally remedy the situation. The world that has been held captive to the rebellion that started in the garden will one day find a warrior king prince who will overcome. So the Psalms talk about how wonderful this king will be. And yet, the history of Israel is the fact that the kings of David, David himself in his own heart, was wrapped up in the lies of the devil. And the kings that came after him were fickle and false and fallible. So Isaiah finally proclaims as one of the prophets of God, even though he has promised somehow that through the Davidic line something will happen, that God is going to chop down the entire tree of David's line, and all that will be left is a stump. And yet from that stump, a little tender shoot is going to spring up. He'll be a righteous branch, the prophets say. Jeremiah calls that righteous branch of David, the Lord, our righteousness itself, in Jeremiah 23. And when Jesus comes and shows up, he says, that's me. I'm here. And he looked nothing like a king. The religious leaders understood the audacity of Jesus' claims and could say, He's got to be either a lunatic or a liar. He cannot be the one who's going. He looks nothing like Solomon, nothing like David. He has no army. How in the world is he going to rescue this world from anything? That is the question. How is he going to bring about justice when he himself is so weak, so alone? And even more to the point, when injustice is reigning everywhere in this world, when sin and death and the power of the devil is in every heart and in every place, how is he going to bring about justice for those who've been unjust? How is he going to make righteous those who are actually unrighteous? How is he going to bring honor to those who are, have have actually shamed themselves? How will he bring vindication to a world rather than the eradication of the entire human race? How will he bind evil when we're all bound up in it? And that's what Paul says is the stumbling block of Jesus. The claims that he makes, the life that he lived, the stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, that God would choose the weakness of the cross, the weakness of this one human life, that God would do it, that Jesus defeats the devil and that he is able to exercise demons from people, that he can heal lepers and sin and disease and even calm the waters of the sea and feed multitudes, but he himself is defeated. 
He is bound and beaten. The overcomer is overcome by death. The victor becomes the victim. The just one accepts the injustices of the world. The divine warrior receives divine judgment. He's crushed by the serpent and therefore crushes the serpent's head. Makes no sense to anyone. And yet that's what he chooses to do for you. That's how much he loves you. To take your place. I should have been the one on the cross. I should have been the one that faced the wrath of God. I should have been the one that faced eternal death. And he takes it for me. Does that not move you? Does that not change everything? That's what the gospel says, the New Testament says. That's what the impact is all about from this text. On the cross, Jesus defeats evil in a way that it could never have been defeated by a king like David or a Caesar or anyone else. He does it the only way by his sacrificial death. And therefore, we face the impact in our lives of how we relate to the world as well. So Paul would tell us now in Romans chapter 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So easy, isn't it? When somebody wrongs you, what do you want to do? When somebody cuts you off on the highway, just with that, you want to get back at them, don't you? And it just shows you how easily we are bound up in that evil that's going on in this world. And somehow we think fighting fire with fire is going to actually work. And that is why this world is so filled with one vengeance after another retribution. And it's this cycle of violence that keeps going all the world around. That doesn't defeat evil, it just perpetuates it. You want to defeat evil, Paul says here. You do it the way Jesus did it. You do it the way Jesus did it for you. You overcome evil with good. You feed the hungry. You serve the poor. You respond with charity and grace and forgiveness. And you might say, well, wait, that's nice, but then we just become... No, no, the only people who can actually bring justice in this world are those who forgive first. If you want to seek justice in any situation, and that is your first and primary goal and only goal, you will never seek justice. You will seek vengeance and retribution. But when you forgive, as Jesus has forgiven, then you can seek justice in that situation. The impact of the claims of Jesus is staggering. You know, religion says he's just a teacher. That's what the world wants to say. He kind of points the right way to live. He models what you do, but the gospel and what Jesus claims here is that he's savior. He is the way. He doesn't just point to it. And he does what you could never do for yourself. Religion says, well, if you work for justice, and if you work hard enough, and if you're good enough, you might make it someday. 
But the gospel says Jesus has accepted the injustices of the world to bring about a righteousness that you could never manufacture. Now, there might be a sentence or two in this whole section that I've kind of avoided up until this point in time because people are like, what does this mean? This is scary. Um, It's where it says, truly I say to you, all the sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And you go like, oh my gosh, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Have I done that? Well, if you're worried about it, you haven't. Okay? Every sin will be forgiven, Jesus says. That's what he has accomplished. Every sin will. Your sins are not. There is no sin too big that says, oh, that one can't be forgiven. It's just too big. No, he's taken it all with his cross. What's this blasphemy or sin against the Holy Spirit? It's not wanting to be forgiven. No, thanks. I don't need a savior. I'll save myself. I'm fine, thank you very much. And if you've done that, you're not worried about it because you think you will save yourself, that you'll master your own soul and captain your own fate. The sin against the Holy Spirit isn't so big. It's just the utter rejection of your need for Jesus. That's the only, quote, unforgiven sin. And again, it comes down to the choices you have. Lunatic, liar, Lord. And by the Holy Spirit, we say Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this day. It's, uh, Mark's gospel is so simply, profoundly in your face about this We have been, we would be right there with his family thinking, Lord Jesus, you were out of your mind. We'd be right there with the religious leaders thinking, you must be doing something of the devil. But somehow, Lord, you moved us by your spirit through your gospel to proclaim you as Lord. We pray, Lord God, somehow through us here at Thrive and through our own lives personally, that the people around us who right now don't know what to make of you, that you would show through us that you are Lord, that you are Savior, that you are the one who forgives, that we can overcome the evil around us through doing good, through serving, through giving, through loving. Lord God, we pray that you would move in us so humbly that we only confess you as Lord and no one else that we would become de-centered from ourselves. We are so egotistical, Lord. We claim so much that we cannot accomplish, and yet you, and give us instead um, voices that proclaim your great goodness and mercy. Lord, we do pray for this world as we see it's filled with retribution and violence, and, and leaders and dictators who claim boastful things about themselves and cannot deliver, and actually, Lord, are damaging and destroying your beautiful creation. We ask, Lord Jesus, your kingdom come and your will is done. Not anyone else's. In our lives and in the lives of others, we pray, Lord, for your peace around this globe, Lord God. Wherever there is a conflict, 
that you reign there supreme through your love and your truth together. We, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would bring peace to our neighborhoods, peace to our homes, and peace, Lord, to our nation and world. Heavenly Father, we thank you this day that you've given us this simple, absolutely profound gospel in the Gospel of Mark. Have these words deeply um, uh, grow in our lives this day, Lord God. And as we respond now with offering not just our tithes and finances to you, help us to offer our lives in response to your goodness, to just say, wow, what a savior we have, Lord Jesus. You are amazing. For those who are online and who have been with us during this hour, Lord, we pray that you'd bless them and keep them in your care this week. Draw them here in person when and if they can make it here, Lord. Have them feel the welcome that we have been welcomed by you in this place. We pray too, Lord, prepare our hearts and our lives as we receive the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, that we are open to who you are, Lord, that we confess that you are, Lord, that you are the one and only, Lord Jesus. There is no other in our lives. So bless us, Lord, as we receive the gift that you bring us, Lord, and help us to respond in ways that are profound, in ways, Lord, that only, um, that, that show uh, the world who you are. All these things we pray in your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen.